Rise and shine, you Syracuse superfans. It's time to pour yourself a tall, delicious glass of orange fizz. Syracuse recruiting news, insider information, latest SU buzz. The Syracuse blogosphere comes to life on the central New York airwaves. It's Fizz Radio. That's right, it is indeed time for some more Fizz Radio. Thanks for joining us, whether it's on the score 1260 this Saturday morning. We've got you till 10 a.m. on that. And if you're listening at a later date and time via the Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, or Spotify, Thanks, as always, as well. Tim Leonard here with you. Going to break down the week in Syracuse sports for the next hour or so. And it was another pretty busy week. You think it's the summertime. We get a down week sprinkled in here, but not for Syracuse sports. It is just go, go, go. We found out a lot this week. Obviously, the big story this weekend, Bayheim's Army competing in the basketball tournament. And we will actually talk with the CEO and founder of the basketball tournament himself, John Mugar, later on in the show, get his thoughts on what the tournament is like this year, the changes they've made, how it's going to look different for you guys, the fans. Also his thoughts on why he selected Syracuse to host over at OCC as one of the eight regional sites that is newly implemented to the tournament this year. And John will tell us about how he came up with the idea to start the tournament in the first place. A really interesting story on that, on how John and a couple of his friends just took a leap of faith with this idea that he always had, this obsession of his, and now here we are in the sixth year of the TBT tournament. Syracuse's Bayheim's Army back in it and trying to contend once again with their host regional at OCC. We'll have full coverage, again, at Orange Fizz on Twitter throughout the week. We will talk to John Mugar, the founder and CEO, a little bit later on in the show, but let's start today's show with this, the big news in football this week, and that is we now know the ACC preseason polls. The media has come out with their preseason polls, and the rankings are out, and Syracuse is placing pretty high in terms of the football ACC preseason polls, actually the second highest mark in the entire conference. So for a lot of people, that's what they should be, and they've earned that, obviously, after a 10-win season last year. But it's good to see because clearly the ACC media follows Syracuse. They follow Dino Babers. They know what he's about and what that program is building into. Not so much with you know some other outlets like FanDuel and what they put as their over-under. Obviously, that blew up because it was shockingly low I think it was five and a half five wins whatever it was it was nonsense so now we see Syracuse getting the respect they deserve obviously last year kind of came out of the blue but with a lot of the returning pieces I know I had Syracuse as second in my preseason poll Jonathan Hoppy my co-worker and I were down there he had him second at the ACC kickoff as well we filled out our polls they are second in the ACC in our eyes and obviously Clemson's number one if that wasn't a no-brainer in of itself, Clemson garnered 170 out of a possible 173 first-place votes. Two of them went to Syracuse, though. That's the second most in the conference. Just amazing, that big, big disparity between one and two. But Syracuse with the second most first-place votes, which is saying something. Fifth year of Dino Babers, and they're already getting that much respect in the ACC media polls. They got two first-place votes, the other one. Went to the Coastal Division favorite, according to the media. That's the Virginia Cavaliers, a team kind of similar to Syracuse, trending up 
And real quick, before we get to the Atlantic Division, Syracuse is half of the ACC, and see how that stacks up, because there is some interesting stuff with that. Let's talk real quick about the Coastal Division, because it is such a crapshoot. Virginia, as I said, is projected to win that division. They get 82 first-place votes in terms of first place to win the Coastal Division, not the entire ACC, but all seven teams in the Coastal half of the ACC get at least one first-place vote. Even Georgia Tech in North Carolina, who check in at 6-7, and seven, got one first-place vote each with first-year head coaches for both of those teams. But when you go down the list, it's not that surprising how they ordered it. It just shows the amount of first-place votes. The order is Virginia 1, Miami slots in at number 2 in the Coastal Division, Virginia Tech 3, Pitt after them in the 4 spot, Duke 5, North Carolina 6, and Georgia Tech rounding it out in 7th in the Coastal Division. It's amazing because in the past six years, six different teams have won the Coastal Division. Duke has won it, North Carolina has won it, Pittsburgh has won it, Virginia Tech has won it, Miami's won it, Georgia Tech's won it in the past six years. That leaves one team to complete the 7-for-7, and that's the team that's projected to win based on the media. That's the Virginia Cavaliers. That's the only team that has not won the Coastal Division in the past six years, just to show you how much of a crapshoot that half of the division is. Obviously considered a little bit weaker than the Atlantic Division that Syracuse is in. And let's go through how that stacks up this year. Syracuse number two, like we said, two first place votes to win the Atlantic as well as two first place votes to win the entire conference. So that right there tells you the media is saying if it's not Clemson out of the ACC, if it's a shock to everyone in the college football world and Clemson, who won 15-0 last year, best team ever, blah, 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 does not come out of the ACC and win it, It's because they lose week three to Syracuse. That's what that tells me, that there are two first-place votes out of the Atlantic Division, two first-place votes from the entire conference going to Syracuse, one to Virginia in the Coastal Division. So perhaps that could be against Clemson in a title game, and they win it that way. But week three in the Dome is that big game for Clemson. People know it. And you could sense that when we were down there for the ACC kickoff. People were asking Syracuse-related questions to Dabo Sweeney, the head coach for Clemson. And he's always been very complimentary of Dino Babers and the program that he is building, building it based on relationships and so forth. But pretty good respect from Syracuse in this ACC media poll. Again, they finish second most first place votes they get two of them the Atlantic Division to finish that off Clemson one Syracuse two Florida State is three need a bounce back year with Taggart in his second year there and that's kind of a big question mark right now obviously Syracuse travels to Florida State so that's a tough game regardless of how good they are and how well they're gelling at that point in the season kind of the midway point of the season it's in Tallahassee and we know Florida State's talented they're always talented so Syracuse has not had a great track record against Florida State up until last year when they won in the Courier Dome. Now we'll see if they can go down in Tallahassee and beat a Florida State team that's projected to finish third in the conference. NC State right behind them in fourth, Boston College fifth. Wake Forest sixth, which that's a lot lower than Jonathan Hoppy and I had Wake Forest. We had them three and four. I had them all the way up at three in my ACC poll. I think they could be a sleeper team. Jonathan Hoppy had them four. Louisville is right behind Wake Forest as the seventh team. So Syracuse getting some respect. You like to see it in the ACC media poll. That's not all, though. 
They finished second in the conference in terms of team rankings, but they also finished second in the conference in terms of individual nominations for the All-ACC preseason teams. Four of them total representing the All-ACC preseason team. There's just one team, and there's a couple players at each position, of course, but it's just first team for Syracuse. So you get four first-teamers, and here they are. It's not anyone on offense. So for all the talk about the offense and Dino Babers, I guess that's a good thing. And that's what we learned from ACC kickoff was as much as Tommy DeVito is being hyped up and, you know, we all think this offense is going to pick up where they left off last year and be fine with DeVito and score a lot of points as they have in the Dino era. Dino thinks his defense is the best unit and then his special teams, which is crazy because special teams is the best in the country probably out of anyone. So he has defense, special teams, and then offense When if he was going to rank them one through three. And that says a lot. I think that's a good thing because Dino's an offensive-minded coach. I'm not worried that they're going to put up points. If anything, you know, looking ahead in the next five, six years, whatever, with Dino Babers at the helm, if anything, you want to make sure they have talent on the defensive side of the ball and in the special teams because that's an area where Syracuse has struggled in the past. That's an area where in a dome you need to have a good defense, and also it's not what Dino Babers is known for. So you want that side of the ball to be maybe even a little more talented than the offense, which we know Dino can produce points even with lesser talent. But this year, obviously, the offense does have plenty of talent. The four selections, though, two of them on the defensive side of the ball, Alton Robinson, a no-brainer at defensive end, is one of them for Syracuse. 83 votes. That's a large chunk of votes. Right up there with the tops among players on the defensive side of the ball. There are only two defensive end slots. Kendall Coleman did not get the other one for Syracuse. It went to Xavier Thomas out of Clemson. So Robinson, who was up there in the tops in terms of sacks last year, coming back for a senior year, gets an all-ACC preseason selection. The other defender probably can guess it. Andre Sisco, the safety, who got 80 votes. So again, pretty much consensus that he would be a first-team All-ACC guy, and Sisco, obviously, just a sophomore. So a big honor for him. Tanner Muse, again, a Clemson guy, is the other safety that was selected to the All-ACC team. The leading vote-getter for any defensive player in the ACC is Bryce Hall from Virginia, the defensive back. He got 122 votes. So that puts it in perspective. 122 means you're the defensive player of the year, preseason defensive player of the year in the ACC. Robinson got 83. Cisco got 80. That's not too shabby in terms of respect from the ACC media. Just those two. Really, you can make a case for Kendall Coleman, but it's tough to put both Syracuse defensive ends on the line there, although Coleman's stats and everything were right up there with Robinson last year, and he's got a lot of leadership qualities too that you got to factor into this but they go with Xavier Thomas who's a good pick from Clemson he got 84 votes so another guy that was kind of a consensus pick at the defensive end spot in terms of the other two Syracuse guys they come from the special teams unit not from offense no offensive selections it's Sterling Hoffrichter the punter and Andre Schmidt of course the kicker a no-brainer the Lou Groza award winner from last year who get all ACC preseason selections. So Syracuse gets four players. That's the second most behind Clemson, who, of course, led the way. They have the preseason player of the year as well and a no-brainer in Trevor Lawrence, the guy who finished second in the preseason player of the year voting, the running back for Clemson, Travis Etienne. So you get the quarterback one 
And second place is Travis Etienne, their running back. 13 players total out of the 27-member all-ACC preseason team belong to Clemson. So the target on their back for that Week 3 matchup, and it's going to be fun to watch. But really, in the grand scheme of things, Syracuse getting some respect, which is good to see. You know, FanDuel with their nonsense, five and a half, six wins, whatever. There's more reputable Vegas sites coming out now that say Syracuse over under right around eight wins. So if you like that number, go bet on it now because I'm sure it's only going to rise, and I think you even get some favorable odds at eight wins right now. And that's coming out, slowly trickling out on some more Vegas notable sites that know what they're doing, that follow these teams closely. FanDuel, I don't even know what that was. Maybe they were just trying to get people to download their app because that was nonsense as we know but that's in the rear view now because now we see Syracuse getting the respect they deserve second they are projected to finish in the ACC and that that's just amazing to hear I know we've been hyping it up all year and it feels like that's what they deserve because it is what they deserve but I mean last year they were fifth or sixth projecting this conference five and a half over under wins after a four and eight season And it's amazing how quickly this program has turned around. It's going to be a fun season, obviously, starting with Liberty. And we'll have you covered all season long at Orange Fizz on Twitter. When we come back, we've been talking a lot about football all throughout the summer here on Fizz Radio. And rightfully so. As I just said, second place in the ACC. It's the closest season to us. There's a lot of reason to talk about them. But let's talk some basketball. We haven't done enough of that. Let's dive in to this Syracuse team and why the expectations on this Syracuse team could be a really good thing for Jim Beheim and company coming up in 2019. That's next on Fizz Radio. Welcome back on Fizz Radio. Tim Leonard here with you on the home of the Central New York sports fan, the score 1260 Until 10 a.m. this morning, just wrapped up some football talk. All ACC preseason polls and all ACC preseason teams are out. If you missed that discussion, check it out on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, full commercial-free versions. You can get right to your smartphone there. Let's talk some basketball now, though. We've done a lot of football talk, and that has been the hype. It's weird that football is the season that everyone is looking forward to. I know it's the closest season, so it does tend to end up that way for most schools, but for Syracuse, it's usually more basketball talk this time around the summer, and usually they're going after more recruits, but after reeling in five in this latest cycle, five incoming freshmen now, they only have so many spots, so Andre Jackson's their big guy. There's less recruiting to talk about, and obviously the expectations are just way higher for this football team than the basketball team, but that could be a really good thing for Jim Beheim and company. Think about the past five, six years, right? When the expectations have been high, they have not lived up to them. Last year, the first-round exit to Baylor. Three years ago now, with Tyler Lydon coming back, you had the grad transfer, Sean Gill and Andrew White. They were a top-20 team in the preseason poll. They were ranked everywhere, expected to have a big year after that Final Four run. They don't make the tournament. So expectations have kind of produced the opposite of what we've seen from the Syracuse team in the past. And I'm high on this freshman class coming in. John Rothstein, a CBS sports basketball expert tweeted out this week. He came out with 10 or 11 names of ACC potential breakout freshmen under the radar freshmen, I think is what he called them. So not, you know, the Duke guys per se, or some of the really talented guys like 
the kid who's going to North Carolina and Cole Anthony that's the number two recruit in the country, but under the beaten path type of guys, and he had four Syracuse guys in the 10 or 11 listed there. That sounds good. I mean, basically our whole class, right? The only guy not listed was John Bolajac, who we don't know where he will fit into this puzzle, but there's a lot of players that can be on this roster. And let's run through this non-conference schedule right now because we're at a point where we can kind of see how this thing is shaping up. And I guess non-conference schedule might not be the right word to use for it anymore. Maybe just call it the 2019 portion of the schedule because Virginia, it starts with them. People might forget about that, but that ACC network game, early conference games now, you get two of them. We don't know the second one, so keep that in mind as I run through the schedule. Basically, everything else seems to be set in stone, filled out, but we do not know that second ACC team. Logic tells you it's probably a road game, right? I mean, you got Virginia at home to start the season if you're playing two early conference games. You think they just even it out, give each team one home game in the non-conference portion, for lack of a better term. So you don't know who that's going to be, but when you get Virginia, you know, hopefully it's not someone too, too tough because this is a young team and Virginia's probably going to be a loss. I mean, they don't have a ton of talent coming back. A lot of those guys from the national championship team are gone, but Diakite's back, and it's Tony Bennett, and they just seem to figure it out. So they'll have more experience in the Syracuse team. It is in the Dome, though, and that's going to be a fun way to start the season. On November 6th, a Wednesday night against Virginia. After that, a week later, November 13th, also a Wednesday night, home against Colgate, a game that you should win, of course. Then you start what is known as the NIT season tip-off, which is that tournament they're playing in the Barclays Center. They have a couple games in the Carrier Dome that are also affiliated with that. One of them is Seattle on November 16th. That's a Saturday night. That's your third game of the year. So at that point, should be back-to-back wins against Colgate and Seattle. Then you go to Cornell November 20th, or I should say Cornell comes to the Dome November 20th. November 23rd, another NIT season tip-off game inside the Carrier Dome, a Saturday night game against Bucknell. So you're looking at four straight games there to kind of ease into this after you get that rough start with Virginia. That's obviously maybe going to be a little deer in the headlights for some of those freshmen. But as you keep going through the schedule, here is the big portion that I really want to hit on. I really want to emphasize this is where we're going to find out about this Syracuse team. And it's even more so than a normal non-conference schedule for this team because it's in this jam-packed week where we're going to find out a lot about what these young freshmen are made of and how this young team's progressing. Here we go. Here's the big stretch. Starts at the Barclays Center, November 27th, Wednesday night versus Oklahoma State. We now know they will start that tournament with Oklahoma State. Then that's a Wednesday night against Oklahoma State on the 27th. Two days later, they will play Ole Miss or Penn State. So those are the three other teams that will be at the Barclays Center with Syracuse. Obviously, if you win, you play the winner of Ole Miss, Penn State. If you lose, you play the loser, and you fall into the loser's bracket. And it'll either be 7 or 9 p.m. that Friday night in the Barclays Center, depending on how they do against Oklahoma State. But those three teams, Oklahoma State, Ole Miss, Penn State, kind of right on par with Syracuse, maybe a little bit below. They're not really projected to make the tournament, but they're not really projected to be well outside. Kind of fringe bubble teams. Maybe you give an Ole Miss or a Penn State a little more respect, even Oklahoma State, but they're all good Power 6 teams. So this is a stretch here with Power 6 teams. After that, quick turnaround. You play Friday night in the Barclays Center, win or lose. You have that second game against Ole Miss or Penn State. 
Then you play December 3rd. That's a Tuesday in the ACC Big Ten Challenge in the Carrier Dome, and that's Iowa. So there you go. Right after that, a big test in the Dome. And after hosting Virginia, who knows how that game goes, you want to step up and play well in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. That could be one of those big tournament challenge-type wins, as we call them, where it's looking back on it in March, and they had a quality win over Iowa at home. Iowa's going to be a pretty good team. After that, it's a little bit of a break right now, based on what we know, until you get to December 14th at Georgetown. So currently on the schedule, it is four straight Power 6 teams. Oklahoma State on the 27th of November, Ole Miss or Penn State on the 29th, Iowa on December 3rd in the Carrier Dome, and then December 14th, a road game at Georgetown. Georgetown's going to be really good. Not really good, but better than in the past. They're going to be a top 25 ball club projected in the preseason polls that are out there right now. So that's going to be a tough road environment, a tough game. And I think that second ACC early season game might fall in there too, which would make it a really daunting stretch. Finals falls in there for the students at some point as well. But December 3rd through the December 14th is open. So that's probably where they're going to fit in. Maybe another road game against a tough team in conference play. And that's where we'll find out about this young team. But the expectations thing, it always seems to work in reverse. I don't know why. I don't know if that is a tell about anything related to Jim Beheim or whatever. But that's just what I've noticed. So I think it might be a good thing. This team might be sneaky good, but we will find out November 27th through December 14th. That's a stretch to watch, and I think even more so than previous non-conference schedules, it's going to be a very, very telling stretch. All right, when we come back, a special guest joins us. John Mugar, the CEO and founder of the basketball tournament, talks Bayheim's Army's chances in this tournament and what's going to be different this year in TBT. You won't want to miss that. It's up next on Fizz Radio. All right, back on Fizz Radio, Tim Leonard now joined alongside a very special guest, John Mugar, who is the founder and CEO of the basketball tournament, TBT, going on all throughout the week and all the way up until early August on ESPN. John, first off, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm great, Tim. How are you? Doing well, man. This is uh, year six of TBT, and it just feels like this thing just keeps on growing and growing. You've got... ESPN broadcasting all the games, the big sponsorship deal with Puma. How cool has it been from your side of things to just see this idea keep coming to life? It's, uh, it gets more and more surreal every year. I think it, every time, I mean, our first game, I went back today and looked, our first game had 17 people in the crowd back in 2014. And um, tomorrow night I'll be walking into uh, you know, Wichita, Wichita State facility that has 7,000 plus people there. And um, and then we have a sellout in Syracuse this Friday, the next day. And uh, it's just uh, with that, you know, the Syracuse crowd alone will be the biggest we've had, if not for Wichita, in the history of the six-year history of the property. So it gets really surreal when you are standing in amongst that and just thinking to yourself that an idea ultimately created all of this passion and this product. That and you know, who knows what these people would have been doing with their summer nights if not for a TBT. Yeah, it's crazy, and you said, I mean, people up here are crazy about it. Bayheim's Army, the former Syracuse alumni team, is playing it again this year and should be a real contender. Let's go back, though, to maybe 2013 or even a little bit before that. How did you sort of come up with this idea? What was the inspiration, and what ultimately made you decide, all right, I'm going to go for it? 
It really started out as a text messaging thread amongst friends. Uh, me and my friend since uh, seventh grade, Dan Friel, he lived in New Orleans at the time. I was in L.A. It was a Sunday morning, late morning, and we were texting each other back and forth. And the premise then was, what do you think would happen if you created uh, a single basketball game or tournament for $50 million and, and who would enter, what types of teams would try to get in, would LeBron try to play, you know, how disruptive would something like that be in, on this existing sports infrastructure that we have. And uh, we, we kind of go back and forth with a lot of crazy ideas, but for some reason this one just kind of stuck and it became an obsession. And over the course of, I would say, four or five months, I found myself going to a, a coffee shop on off days when I wasn't working and working on this Microsoft Word document to, uh, to kind of spell out exactly how this could happen and, and, and just refining the concept. And then once I had something that I felt pretty good about, I started sending it around to, to friends and family and getting feedback and ultimately... You know, two years later, it took us to actually put on an iteration of it, which was a half a million dollar winner-take-all tournament in Philadelphia. And and after that point, we got the attention of ESPN, and and um, and kind of off we went for about five years up to this point now. Where were you working at the time before you decided to go all in on TBT? I was a producer uh, on Tim and Eric Awesome Show for on Adult Swim for about six years so I started with them prior to their first the first episode of that show and I I saw that one all the way through the end wow so you're a producer you go to friends and family and you say I want to start this basketball tournament I'm imagining the feedback wasn't oh yeah go for it right away right no I mean the most startling thing is when you walk into a an executive's office with a powerpoint deck of a you know 50 million dollar tournament and you're somebody who's coming from a completely different world who's never done anything remotely close to that. And, and they, um, you know, it's a, it's a very cool idea. I think top to bottom people thought it was a great idea and it would be really awesome. But then, you know, inevitably they look across the table and see me and say, I mean, I don't know, this kid can pull it off. Probably not. <laughs> well, now you're the one laughing at him right now. Was there one particular moment when you said, all right, now I know this is kind of a big deal. Now I know this is something that it was a good idea all, all along, but now I kind of see the fruits of it. The, the first moment like that, I think, was 2014, the first year we did it. In the first game, it was like 8.30 in the morning. We scheduled all these games back-to-back. I think we had 32 teams playing in one day, and it was like maybe 56 seconds before the tip, and one team had four people, and the other team had like seven. And the fifth guy was Marshall Henderson. And he came running into the gym with his jersey spun around his neck, and he's like, all right, let's play some basketball. <laughs> no warm-up. Just jumped right into the game. And, like, that was the moment where once the once the, they started, the whistle started, the clock started, and then we actually were playing basketball, that was a huge milestone because it had been three and a half years from, from inception to that point. Um, and then I would have to give credit, not just because I'm talking to you, but the following year when Bayhams Army came in, you know, I, I – we had some alumni teams previously, but I just did not understand the the passion that you guys have for your team, and that that was like a whole other notch when I walked into that gym that night, and everyone was cla- standing and clapping at the beginning of the game, 
until a field goal was hit. And, like, I, that, that was unbelievable, that moment. Yeah, I mean, people up here are crazy about it, man. We just see it in the articles we post here on Orange Fizz, and you could tell right away that people want more content about it. People are following it. So it's been really cool to watch this thing grow. Talking with John Mugar, who is the founder and CEO of the basketball tournament, Bayheim's Army, competing in it again this year. And they'll actually be hosting this year in the OCC Regional. You mentioned that was already sold out. What brought that idea about to add some host teams to this year's tournament? I, it, I from the beginning days, I, I I really just can't stand neutral site basketball, and it's like it's like the one my favorite events, March Madness. So I don't I don't want to knock it. It's the one thing about it that I can't stand, and like the the one thing that the NIT format's awesome. It's just it's I love home court advantage basketball, and um. And so we knew we wanted to figure out a way to get that home court advantage for certain fans. And it took us about four years to realize it. We first, first we put sites in like big cities to try to get as many players as possible, like in New York and LA. But last year we kind of branched out and did an experiment with an Ohio State alumni team in Columbus and then a, a VCU alumni team down in Richmond. And it went really well. And so, I mean, immediately, we always knew Syracuse would be kind of a home run, but we wanted to test it elsewhere first because we, we, um, you know, we don't want to throw something in front of the fan base without really knowing if it's going to work or not. So once we saw it, the second we saw it happening down there, we're like, okay, I think we're, getting, we're ready to go to Syracuse. So that's new this year. There's 64 teams competing in this first round. What are some other improvements or changes this year that fans should know about that might be different from other TBT tournaments in the past. The um, the eight regional sites is a big one. They're they're playing back to back to back days that first weekend. That's a new one. So we we actually the player commitment this year is only two weekends. It used to be three weekends if they advanced all the way through. We thought that was a big deal for a lot of these players, um, just because in the summer when a lot of these guys are home from Europe or from wherever they play, they just want some time off. They have weddings to go to, or they're getting married themselves or having children, and you know, we wanted to be able to free up as much time for these players as possible to to appeal to an even elite, you know, more elite caliber player. Um, that's a big one. The, I mean, the, the at the end of game, Elam ending, the, that was a big decision to implement that last year and then to bring it back again this year. So that's another big one. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with it, the way that you consume everything uh, TVT related. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the cooler things you guys do and you guys have been creative and keeping it entertained with a lot but that elam ending what was the genesis behind that idea for those that don't know obviously it's the you play to a certain target score once it gets to four minutes right left in the game yep yeah the last dead ball time out there you shut the game clock off you keep keep it off for the rest of the game and you set a target score by taking the leading team score and adding eight to it so the first team to the target score wins yeah, it's really cool because you can end a game on a dunk or a big three-pointer or something. Obviously, it eliminates the possibility of overtime. So what went into the decision-making in terms of that idea? That was a, a crazy one. So I, I think maybe three days after our 2016 championship, we got an email at the, in the inbox at info at the tournament.com, and it was a 67-page PowerPoint deck from someone named Nick Elam about uh, his research. He's a, he's a, he was in his 30s. He's a Mensa. He's a middle school principal in Ohio. He personally DVR'd 2,000 basketball games over the past four or five years. And he got home from work at night, fast forward to the fourth quarter, and he tracked 
I personally track all this data as far as what happened at the end of all these basketball games. And so in the 2,000 games that he tracked, he found that 1,000 went the route of the trailing team fouling at the end of the game to prevent the game clock from running out because that's the only strategy they have. And out of those 1,000 games, the 1,000 teams that went, went on to foul like that, only 17 saw the trailing team come back and win. And so his data proved not only was it very frustrating from a fan's perspective, sitting through those games with the losing teams fouling over and over again, the last minute takes 10 minutes to play out, but it was a completely ineffective strategy that only, you know, you only get rewarded as a fan 17 out of 1,000 times. And so he had this solution to it, which I thought was just blasphemous the first time I read it because I'm, I'm, I'm a basketball purist. But the more I read it, the more I considered it, and we implemented it. It's just like I'm, I'm so excited that we're the only ones doing it because, like, for the first time in three years, to be honest with you, Tim, like, I really honestly feel like this is going to go everywhere in basketball at some point. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, that's interesting data for sure. I know March Madness kind of copied you guys with the bracket reveal at the end. Maybe someday you'll be a visionary, and obviously Elon will be a visionary for uh, changing the way basketball is played in the future. I, I guess that's a lofty goal, but it's cool what you guys are doing with getting creative and making it more interesting from a fan's perspective. Yeah, it took March Madness four years to do the bracket, um, so I think it might take them a little bit longer to adopt this. It's it gives us a unique identity in the summer, and um, it only helps because you know we we're we're the ultimate type of a we're the ultimate event to do something like this. No one else would ever do it because they're too successful to take a risk like this, and we're not successful enough to, to not risk. So we're we're very we're more than happy to do things that make sense like this. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. Talking with John Mugar, the CEO and founder of the basketball tournament. All right, before we let you go, John, we do have to ask you a little bit about Bayheim's Army. I know you're probably just rooting for the tournament to go well and not picking a team specifically, but ESPN came out with their rankings. They have Bayheim's Army as the number three team out of the 64 slotted. They are a number one seed. Obviously, Overseas Elite is that team that everyone's trying to chase down, four-time reigning champs. How do you see Bayheim's Army stacking up in this tournament? They're always a great TBT team because they have awesome TBT players. Like the, the best TBT players aren't necessarily like the most talented, but Bayhams Army has some of the most talented. They also have they have guys with heart and who can tap into anger. And um, like Devendorf is like your prototypical TBT player. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think I despise the player more than Devendorf when he was in college and then love a player more now that he's in TBT. Now that I'm I'm watching him play and understand how he plays, he's like he's the fiery, fieriest, best TBC type of competitor. Hakeem Warwick is another guy who just turns it up a notch. He was in that first game, by the way, at 8:30 in the morning back in 2014. But he's he's like such a great prototypical TBT type player. So they, it's a great chemistry for TBT. Gillen's another one. I mean, they are top to bottom. They just have a lot of guys who almost play like they have chips on their shoulder and that's like exactly the formula you need to have success in TBT. they've been successful in the past we'll have to wait and see this year runs all the way through august 6 and ends in chicago does the basketball tournament john thanks so much for joining us thank you tim that's john mugard the founder and ceo of the basketball tournament really cool to get his perspective on that that's just started out as an idea that he was spitballing with some friends through some text messages, and now here it is in his sixth year 
of its installment in the summer. Winner take all, $2 million prize, and it's become a big event. It's right in that dead period where people are looking for a sports fix. People are looking for more basketball after the NBA draft and Summer League finally winds down, and they're seizing the moment in that time slot. They've got ESPN aboard, and Bayheim's Army back again this year with a talented team. Like John said, there's a lot of scrappy guys on that team, and they really fit the mold of a TBT team. Obviously, if you're listening to this on Saturday, here I am taping it on Thursday, so hopefully I'm not jinxing the team. You guys know what the result was of their first game last night, but they'll be playing all throughout the weekend, hopefully, if they do win on Friday night, and we will be covering it at Orange Fizz on Twitter. Gil Gross is down there live tweeting and talking to the players afterwards, so be sure to check us out at Orange Fizz on Twitter and at orangefizz.net for all your coverage of TBT. All right, on the other side, let's dive into some burning questions from the week, including... Will Eric Dungy have an NFL future after the news we found out this week? It's Fizz Feedback on the other side on the score, 1260. Closing up shop here on Fizz Radio. Time for Fizz Feedback, how we end all of our shows here on the score, 1260, every Saturday morning, 9 to 10 a.m., throughout a couple polls at Orange Fizz on Twitter. Two polls this week. If you comment on them, we will shout out your opinion right here on the Score 1260. First question this week, does Eric Dungy have a future in the NFL? Simple yes or no question to get us started. If you didn't see the news this week, Dungy was released from the training camp preseason roster with the New York Giants. He was listed as a quarterback slash tight end for them, cut from the roster and waived. So right now, not on an NFL roster, with that in mind, does he have a future? Leading the way is no. 61% of voters on Twitter said Eric Dungy does not have a future in the NFL, leaving 39% of voters saying yes. And that's kind of what I expected. I'd say right now it's looking a little bleaker, especially after the Giants news. And it's just hard because, and I think this has been brought up, I know Julian Wiggum tweeted about this, a great follow for Syracuse football fans, a former Syracuse defensive back. He's always tweeting about Syracuse football on Twitter, and he said in you know four or five years there's going to be a role for Eric Dungy. But right now, people aren't willing to put him on their roster. They're not willing to take a chance on someone like that because they don't know his exact role. He's kind of a tweener there. But it is a modern style of quarterback, and we got a good response. Sammy Boy 24 Again, if you comment on any of these posts, we will shout you out. He says, I say yes, Eric Dungy will have a future in the NFL, and I believe it will be in a Taysom Hill-type role. He's a big and strong guy who can make plays with his feet, can also sling it around if needed, will be a great guy to throw in for a few plays to throw off opposing defenses. That's a great point and a good comment there from Sammy Boy 24 Taysom Hill, of course, the guy for the Saints that was their dual-threat quarterback they bring in for some wildcat-type plays. I think that could be an Eric Dungy role in the future, but if I had to pick right now, unfortunately, even though we love the guy and he was a warrior for us, it's just hard to find that exact role, so I don't know if he has a future right now. I lean more towards 61% of the vote, which said no to that question on Fizz Feedback. The next question we have, how many four-star recruits do you think Syracuse will land in this football class. Zero, one, two, three, or more. This is pretty spread out across the board. 15% say zero. That's what they have right now. No four-star crew. It's reeled in yet. One has 
33% of the vote, a pretty good portion. Two has the most percentage, 40% of this vote, and three or more has got 12%. So three or more is the fewest, zero the second fewest, one the third fewest, and two leading the way with 40% of the vote. I'd say they get a four-star wide receiver, and I'd say one. And I think it could be Bryce Gowdy, who is announcing his decision on July 30th. Follow Orange Fizz on Twitter, orangefizz.net, for articles about that, because that's the guy right now who I think could be coming. He's down to West Virginia, Georgia Tech, and it depends where you look. Some have him as a four-star, some not. He's pretty much a four-star, though. I'd count him as one, and that would be a big addition to the Syracuse class that kind of needs a four-star right now after a Big Ten win season. You'd like to see those start coming in, getting a little later in the process. Fans still slightly optimistic, though, and I don't blame them. I think they do get one in the wide receiver class. But that'll do it for this week's edition of Fizz Radio. I'm Tim Leonard signing off. Join us next week, same time, Saturday mornings, 9 to 10, right here on The Score 1260.